Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks, Sarah. No, I'll take it. Thanks so much. Beloved, there is my opinion, there's your opinion, and there's the Lord Jesus Christ's truth. What Sarah just read, short, but it's the truth. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for waking us up this morning. Thank you for bringing us here. Um, Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for stepping into our world. Thank you for living and dying for us. Thank you for rising from the grave. Thank you for pouring out your spirit into our lives. And we would ask you this morning by your spirit, would you please allow us to behold you in your beauty? Would you allow us to taste and see that you're good? Would you teach us? Lord, I don't have the ability to change hearts. I can't even change my own. But you are the great God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. You were the God who has promised to remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And we look to you today to continue to write your will and your ways on our hearts. Lord, change us, convict us, encourage us and send us out into our neighborhoods and our blocks and our our places of work and play that we might be a light to the nations. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. My name's Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. I serve alongside Colin as one of the elders, and if you're visiting with us, welcome. Um, We are in the midst of a sermon series that we actually began last fall called uh, A Light to the Nations. And we have been asking and we are continuing to ask the question, what is the mission of the church? Why do we exist? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And what the Bible tells us, what we've seen this last, what, three or four or five months is that the mission of the church is to participate in the mission of God. That the the mission of the church, that God in his grace, when he calls us to himself, he calls us into his purposes, into his ways, into his mission. What that means is that your life, if you were a believer, is, is brimming with meaning and significance. That your relationships are divine appointments and opportunities. The mission of the church is to participate in the mission of God. Of course, that raises a second question, right? What is the mission of God? In our passage, Jesus steps onto the scene 
for the first time. And he says this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They're very familiar words to us. If, you, if you're a believer, if, if you're familiar with the Bible story, you've heard those words over and over and over again. They might bounce off your heart like, like, like uh, something, uh, like a, a Super Bowl off of a wall. But the fact of the matter is those words are pregnant with meaning and with significance. Because with these words, Jesus is announcing the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Jesus is announcing that after hundreds of years of silence, God is on the move, that God is in action. The first thing Jesus says in this passage is the time is fulfilled. Now, what does that mean? Last week, I said this, but it bears repeating. It means this. It means in order to understand Jesus, in order to understand who he is, in, and in order to understand what he came to do, you, you have to understand the mission of God as he lays it out in the Old Testament, as he lays it out through the people of Israel. It means, in the words of Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew in their excellent book, The Drama of Scripture, we cannot grasp the meaning of the story of Jesus until we begin to see it, see that it is in fact the climactic episode of the great story of the Bible, the chronicle of God's work in human history, that it is, that, that, that what we see here is the beginning of the climax of the story of the mission of God. What this means is that we can't understand Jesus without understanding the mission of God in the Old Testament, and we can't really understand the Old Testament and the mission of God unless we understand Jesus. Trying to understand Jesus without understanding the story of the Old Testament is like trying to understand your spouse, if you're married, without knowing anything about your spouse's family. Kathy and I have been married for almost 29 years, and we should give Kathy a round of applause. I'm just, yeah, whatever. Okay. Off and on during those almost 29 years, Kathy and I had gone to counseling. And you might go, whoa, counseling, that's scary. No, don't be scared. Our marriage is okay. We have a conviction, and that conviction is this, that it's helpful to have a third set of eyes to look at us and to help us see the things uh, that we can't see ourselves. Um, we, we think it's helpful to have somebody who doesn't have a horse in the race to sort of listen and, and tell us what they see. Now, I've, we've gone to lots of counselors over 29 years. Our most recent counselor is this guy named Bruce McCurdy. He's at Christ Community. He's the director of Christ Community's Counseling Center. He's awesome. And Bruce has done something that no other counselor that we've ever uh, visited has done. 
he's asked us questions about our families. He, he, he asked questions about my relationship with my mother and my father. He asks questions about Kathy's relationship with her mother and father. He's very interested, not just in us, but in our families of origin. And, and, and what we've come to see is that while understanding our families of origin, uh, well, what we've, under, what we've come to understand is that, that seeing how we related, how we grew up, what it was like being Jeff Wilkins in the Wilkins family, what it was like being Kathy Green in the Green family, what it was like, how we related to our mothers and, and fathers and to our brothers and sisters. Those things, while they don't excuse what we do, they help us understand why we do what we do. Family of origin is, 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 is very important. Now, why do I say that? Well, do you remember Mitchell's sermon, the first Sunday of Advent? It was rooted in, based in Matthew chapter one. Do you remember how Matthew starts the gospel? It's very exciting. I think it's something like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to list name after name after name after name. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, do you know this? Luke does the exact same thing. But whereas Matthew starts with Abraham, Luke starts with Adam. And what, what both Matthew and Luke are doing is they're saying, hey, here is Jesus' family of origin. And what this means is that if we want to understand Jesus, we have to understand the Old Testament. We have to understand the people of God. Because it's in the people of God where it's in the Old Testament through Adam, through Abraham, through the nation of Israel that we begin to get glimpses of the mission of God. That he, is going, he, that he promises to come and he's gonna redeem and he's gonna restore everything. He's gonna make all things new. He's gonna make all things right. So if that's the case, let me give you a brief overview of the story of Jesus' family of origin. After Jesus's, or after God's good creation was fouled up by Adam and Eve's rebellion, God immediately set out on a salvage mission to rescue and to redeem not only his people, but he, he, he set out to redeem all of creation. He, he set out to make all things new as far as the curse is found. He chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants and he said to them, I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I want you to be like a magnet that, that the way that you live your lives is, 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 is like a magnet, that it, it, it's, it's a preview of, of how I designed humanity to work and it's a magnet that draws people to worship the Lord. Of course, if you know the story, the Israelites did a pretty terrible job and the results were cataclysmic. God sends judgment on the Israelites and he, by, by, by the hand of the Babylonians. They take the Israelites into captivity. But God, through his prophets, made a promise 
that the day would come when he would return and he would intervene and he would bring about all the things that he had promised, the restoration of the people of Israel and through the restoration of his people, the restoration of all creation. The prophet said things like this. They said, in the last days, many people will flock to the house of the Lord to learn his ways. And God will sit as judge between the nations and they will all beat their swords into plowshares because there will no longer be any need for them. War will be a thing of the past. This was the hope of every Jew. This was the hope of the Jews in Jesus' day. This is Jesus' backstory, and this is the context into which we find Jesus stepping when we come to Mark chapter one. When Jesus appears on the scene, he announces the time is fulfilled. But what does that mean? It means that Jesus understands himself He understands his identity and he understands his mission as the fulfillment of Israel's story. And what that that means for you and for me is that in order for us to rightly understand Israel's story, we have to understand Jesus. In order for us to rightly understand our story, we have to understand Jesus. But that's not all that Jesus says when he arrives, is it? Because he says, The time is fulfilled, and then he goes on to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, now what you need to know is that these words, the kingdom of God is at hand, are incredibly weighty. They are incredibly significant. Jesus, in those words, he is speaking the love language of the Israelites, He is speaking the language of the kingdom. He is speaking about what they have longed for for centuries. In Jesus' day, Israel was in deep trouble. The people were living under the rule of the Romans and their local politicians were corrupt. But the Jews knew the promise of God. One day I will come and I will make all things new. One day I will come and I will make you new. They knew that as corrupt and as broken as the world is, it would not always be this way. They also believed that history was composed of two very distinct periods. There was the present age and there was the age to come. In the present age, It began with Adam and Eve, with their rebellion against God's rule. The whole of creation had been infected by the corrosive power of sin. Inevitably, evil in the the present age would would fester and, and it would flourish in the world throughout the present age, even among God's own people. But there was a promise of the age to come when God would intervene to cleanse and to cure and to renew his people. He would conquer all of Israel's enemies and through his cleansed and renewed people, he would cleanse and renew all creation. 
Every Jew knew this story. Every Jew longed for this kingdom. They hoped for this kingdom, that God would finally come and he would renew all of creation. And that as this crown jewel, Israel would come out on top. They would be the superpower. They would no longer be under the the feet of the Romans or the Babylonians or whomever. But they would be the power. But here's the thing. Their hopes, their expectations were very different than what Jesus had come to do. Not only were they different, we, we like diversity, and, and that's, that's cool. We like differences of opinion. We like perspectives. But as far as this goes, they were wrong. Now, how can I say that? They were wrong. What Jesus says what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's next? Repent and believe. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the words repent and believe. I know what I think about. I I, I tend to think that what God is calling me to is to sort of examine myself, identify some sin struggle or not struggle, right? And to begin to wage war against it, to turn from my sin and turn to him. And, and, and that's true. That is right. Repentance is seeing sin, turning from sin 180 degrees and looking at Jesus. Absolutely right. But that's not exactly what Jesus meant when he called Israel to repent and believe. It's not what it, it, it meant in total in the first century Galilee. Now, why do I say that? Well, consider The Jewish aristocrat, Josephus the historian. Josephus was a Jew, and he was born around the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. In 66 AD, he was sent as a young army commander to quell some rebellious rumblings in Galilee. His assignment, as he describes it in his autobiography, was to persuade the rebel leaders to enter into a ceasefire with Rome. Why would, the, why, would, why would the rebels do that? Josephus said, you gotta trust me and you gotta trust the other Jewish aristocrats. We can solve the problem. We can resolve your complaints against Rome in a way that's in your best interest and it will enable all of us to live together peaceably. So Josephus meets with the rebel leader, and he says, set your own agenda to the side and trust me. And the words Josephus uses are very interesting because they resemble the words that Jesus speaks in Mark 1.15. Josephus tells the rebel leaders to repent and believe me, believe in me. Now, I want you to see, again, that Josephus is not calling the rebel leader to take an inward look, identify some sin that he's not really wrestling with, and go to war with that sin. As N.T. Wright points out, in Jesus' day, repent and believe had a far more specific and political meaning. Wright continues, When we examine Jesus of Nazareth going around Galilee and telling people to repent and believe in the gospel, we dare not screen out these meanings. 
Even if we end up suggesting that Jesus meant more than Josephus did, that there were indeed religious and moral and theological dimensions to his call, we cannot suppose that he meant less. And then he says this. When Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel, he is telling his hearers to give up their agendas and to trust him for his way of bringing the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God wouldn't come as many expected through military revolt against Rome. It wouldn't look like an endorsement of everyone's kingdom agenda. In fact, it would, it would overturn all of the expectations of the day. That's why when Keller talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about the upside down kingdom or the forward back kingdom. Jesus comes with the kingdom, but the kingdom doesn't look like what the people are expecting. When Jesus says repent and believe, he's saying turn from your own agendas and follow me. Let your agenda go and follow me. And this is where the words of Jesus in this passage actually speak most directly to us. Because like the Jews of Jesus' day, every one of us walks into this room with, with certain hopes and dreams and expectations for how God is going to work in our lives and through our lives and our community and in our world. Some of these hopes are worldwide, but many of these hopes are personal, they're individual. Maybe it's, it's getting into a particular school or maybe it's better health. Maybe it's getting married or having children. Maybe it's financial success. Maybe it's, it's getting a particular job or promotion. Now, here's the thing. None of those things is bad. None of those things is wrong. Um, in fact, when, we, when, when we're admitted into a school or when we get a, a good report from a doctor or when we get married, what do we call it? We call it a blessing from God. And it is a blessing from God. But when these desires, which are good, become demands, I must have this, we turn these good things into God things. Take, for instance, the desire for a lover. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernst Becker describes what it looks like when the desire for a lover morphs into a demand for a lover. He writes, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life the love object becomes God. Becker continues, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? He said, I don't think, I don't think Becker's a believer. I have no reason to think so, but he says this. He says, we want redemption, nothing less. Becker's not a believer, but he's using kingdom language. He is saying that when a desire morphs into demand, what we are really looking for is the kingdom of God without God. And here's the thing. God is a jealous God. And that's a good thing. Over and over he says in his word, 
there is no other God beside me. He says, my glory I will not give to another. The question that you and I have to ask as we wrestle with this question is whose dream are you dreaming? Whose kingdom do you want to build? What is, what's your agenda? Have your desires morphed into demands? The fact is, our desires that morph into demands cannot bear the weight of divinity. Again, Ernst Becker writes, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhead. However much we may idealize and idolize our lover, he or she inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfections. Human partners cannot bear the burden of Godhead. You know this. If you're married, you know this. If you're wanting to get married, you need to know this. Husbands and wives cannot bear the weight of divinity. If you put that kind of pressure on your spouse, if you put that kind of pressure on your children, if you put that kind of pressure and expectation on a job, if you put that kind of expectation on whatever, it will, it will be crushed and you will be crushed in the process. How can you know if your desires have morphed into demands? Well, what happens when Jesus doesn't answer your prayers? What happens when he says no, or not yet, or not ever? What happens when Jesus doesn't bless your efforts? What happens when you honor Jesus in your life by doing the right thing, whatever the right thing is at whatever moment, and the the things that you expect don't work the way you expect them to work. What happens when Jesus doesn't live up to your expectations or perform to your expectations? Jesus' contemporaries were expecting the kingdom to come in power. Their vision of the kingdom of God included the liberation of Israel from their Roman oppressors. They they knew how God had liberated the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And, and that was their model. That was their expectation. God's going to act like now, like he acted then. But Jesus shows up and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. They're expecting a Red Sea event. They're expecting plagues. Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations. What happens? Their shouts. You remember what, you remember what the people were shouting when Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the triumphant entry? They were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna in the highest. Those same people were screaming, crucify, crucify, less than a week later. What happens when God doesn't answer your prayers? What happens when God doesn't live up to your expectations? How can you know if your desires, which are oftentimes good, have morphed into demands? Well, what do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? Anger with God for not giving you what you want, what you think you deserve. Or accusations against God. You don't love me, you don't really love me. If you really loved me, you would give me this. Or maybe, maybe you just get cold. You, you, you kind of flood with apathy. It could look like blowing off God's commandments. It could look like a lot of things. But here's what you have to see. This is what you have to see. When Jesus shows up and he proclaims the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he is doing something infinitely better than any one of the Jews in Jesus' day would have asked or imagined. What did the Jews want? The Jews wanted judgment. They wanted God to squash the Romans, but they had no idea, absolutely no idea what their real problem was, what their biggest problem was, because their, real, their biggest problem, their real problem wasn't the Romans. Their real problem was themselves. Their real problem was their hearts. Should Jesus have come and brought the kingdom in the way that they expected, the way that they wanted, they too would have gone up in flames. But God is gracious and he doesn't give them what they want. He doesn't give them what they expect. The good news of this passage is that Jesus calls them and he calls us not only to repent of our agendas for him, we all have them, but also to believe the gospel, to believe in the good news. It's interesting to me and we're going to talk about this more in the weeks ahead, that Jesus actually never defines the kingdom of God for his people. He never gives a clear, concise definition. The kingdom of God is this. Um, rather, Jesus embodies the kingdom of God in his words and in his deeds. I mean, think about it. What are miracles? What are exorcisms? What are those miraculous feedings, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000? What is Jesus when, when, when he says to the, to the waves, be still? In the words of Tim Keller, the Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem it where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of the kingdom. What does Jesus talk about when, when he teaches and preaches? You know, what he, you know what he's always talking about? He's always talking about the kingdom of God. But again, he's not giving sort of some sort of, sort of straightforward definition. He's painting pictures. The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. 
What we realize as we watch Jesus and as we listen to Jesus is that the kingdom that he has come to inaugurate, the kingdom that he announces in Mark chapter one is very different from the kingdom that we want or expect right now. Jesus comes in weakness and he comes for sinners and he comes for people who come to him with their own agendas, their own idolatrous agendas for him and he comes to them in grace and the path that he walks, the path of the kingdom is a path paved with suffering and with rejection, with misunderstanding, with loneliness. And it leads to the cross. Nobody expected the Messiah to come and die. But it leads beyond the cross. It leads to resurrection. It leads to new creation. And ultimately, it leads to a renewed heavens and new earth. Beloved, when Jesus arrives on the scene and he proclaims, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is, or the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, he is announcing the good news that God's power to save his creation has really arrived in him. That God has entered into human history in love and in power to heal and liberate and to renew the whole creation. That a new reality has broken into the present, that the future has broken into the present. But here's the thing, it doesn't look like the Jews of Jesus' day expected and it doesn't really look like what we expect either. And here's the question you have to ask. Will you lay down your expectations and will you lay down your agendas and believe the gospel? Will you lay down your expectations and will you lay down your agendas and believe Jesus? John 6. Jesus has been teaching and he's been preaching and he's been debating with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day and the day winds up and there are a group of his followers that say, wow, Jesus, Jesus is saying some weird stuff, stuff that I don't really like. Um, he just talked about eating his body and, and drinking his blood. He's saying weird things. This is a really, really hard, this is a really hard teaching and we're told by John that it, at the end of the day, many of those followers turned and walked away. Jesus wasn't who they expected. Jesus wasn't who they wanted. Jesus turns to his 12 disciples who were his closest friends and he says to them, he asks them, do you wanna go as well? Beloved, that's Jesus' question to you and to me this morning. Do you want to go as well?
My prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we might answer with Simon Peter today and every day, no matter what comes our way. Do you know what Peter said? He said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed that they have come to know, and we, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beloved, Jesus will not live up to your expectations. He will not do what you want to do. But he is alive and he is well and he is at work and he will come again. And I can say that with absolute certainty because of what we celebrate at the table. That this same Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life for people like you and me. That he he died the death that you deserve, that I deserve. Why? So that he can fulfill all of God's promises both in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you in particular for these words. Thank you that you have inaugurated the kingdom of God. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, when we think about it, we know the power of your kingdom in us. We, we, we're here. You've brought us here. You've given us faith. Your spirit's at work in us. It conv you, you convict us of our sin and you encourage us and, and comfort us with your love. We know that your kingdom has come and yet we, we long for your kingdom to come in completion. And, and honestly, we complain and we doubt and we disobey because <laughs> you're not doing what we want. Please forgive us and please grow us. Lord, we believe, help us overcome our unbelief and help us, Lord, to take up our cross daily and follow you. Help us to take up our cross daily and follow you. Because on the other side of death is resurrection. First there's death, then there's resurrection. Lord, help us, help us believe that. Pound it into our skulls and help us live in light of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.